Tragically, though, many Christians refuse to believe that God himself guarantees the believer's eternal security. My friends, if you're a Christian, do you really believe this truth? Do you really believe what you believe? Sometimes it shows that we don't believe this because we're often practical atheists. Notice I said practical atheists. You know, the way we talk, the way we live, we show that we, we don't really trust in God. We don't, sometimes we act like God is not everywhere. When we do that, we're showing that we're practical atheists. Well, where does this false belief come from? Where does this false belief come from that, that, that some Christians somehow believe that, that God is not guaranteeing my eternal security? Well, such a, de- a denial of this truth is really tied to the belief that salvation is some kind of a cooperative effort, be- effort between you and God. If you believe that somehow you cooperated to gain your salvation, well, then naturally, the, the outcome of that is, is you're, you're going to somehow think, well, this is where the idea that you can lose your salvation comes from. Those who believe you can lose your salvation based upon what you do in your Christian life, well, they believe that they also cooperated with God in their salvation. So although God's not going to fail, fail on his side, they might say, man fails. And so therefore you get the sense of insecurity. So where does our security come from? It comes from a promise but it also comes from the fact we see here in Romans 8, 28, that God is the guarantor. God is. God is the guarantor. Look at verse 28 again. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It says that we know all things work together for good. Now, the extent of the believer's security here is limitless because God is the one who is granting us this. Why is our security limitless? Because God is the cause. God is the cause here, as as we see throughout the whole book of Romans, but especially here in in chapter 8. God causes everything in the believer's life to be a blessing. We know all things work together for good. Why? Because it's to those who love God. God is the cause. Now the Apostle Paul emphasizes that God himself is bringing about the good here that comes to people. God is doing this, not us. The words all things, by the way. I love the word all. It's showing... All things are utterly comprehensive. Utterly comprehensive. All things, but not this, no. All things, but, but not, surely not this, no. It says all things. All things. There are no qualifications and no limits. It is all things work together for good. Now don't misunderstand God here, okay? Because Paul is not saying that God prevents his children from experiencing things that can harm them. I am not going to preach a health and wealth gospel to you. The health and wealth gospel preaches, you know, believe in Jesus Christ and he's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Wrong. Oh, he might. He's capable of that. 
But most Christians are not going to be that. In fact, the Lord here takes, takes all that he allows to happen to us and he, he turns those things ultimately into blessings. All things that happen to us, including the bad things. Now that phrase there in your Bible, to work together, is translating a Greek word. Listen to this, because you've probably heard this word, similar word in English. It's the Greek word, synergio, synergio, from which we get our English word, synergism. Synergism. You say, well, I, I still don't get it. If you don't know what synergism means, you may not get it. So let me explain that synergism is the working together of various parts coming together to produce an an effect that is greater than the amount of each element if it was used separately. Okay? For example, let's see how well you know your chemicals. Any of you study chemistry in high school? Well, let me ask you, would any of you like to eat pure sodium? Anyone? Any volunteers to eat pure sodium? I wouldn't recommend it. Because sodium is a, is a harmful chemical. It's a harmful chemical. How about chlorine? Any, any takers on chlorine? Pure chlorine. Yeah, that's the stuff they put in the swimming pools, but it's really diluted. Chlorine is, as well. Pure chlorine is a very harmful chemical, and, and in fact can be uh, extremely deadly. However, I don't know if how many of you pay attention to this, when you combine sodium and chlorine together, do you know what you get? you get just plain old table salt. A very beneficial, wonderful thing. But those things taken separately are very harmful chemicals. Put together, when they come together, that's synergism. Synergy. That's the idea here from this Greek word, to work together. Like sodium and chlorine coming together to make something that's wonderful and tastes good and is beneficial. So God is working things together. He is is in this process of synergism, taking all these individual things that happen in your life and working them for for a blessing. Are you ready for the truth? This is a painful truth. God causes even evil things to work for our good. Even evil things. What kind of evil things? I'm including evil things such as suffering and temptation and sin even. Even sin, yes. God can even use sin in your life to accomplish good. A classic example, Old Testament classic example, is Joseph. Joseph, we see how God used unjust suffering in Joseph's life to bring about good. Remember, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. He gets down into Egypt and he's thrown into prison. Think about that. If Joseph had never been sold into slavery and had never been thrown into prison, he would never have been able to save his family from starvation. God was working all of these events in Joseph's life for good. In fact, Joseph understood. He understood that God was sovereign and working all things in his life for good. And that's why he said in Genesis 50, verse 20, And as for you, here he is, he's speaking to his wicked brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. 
And the supreme example, as if Joseph isn't a good enough example, the supreme example of how God uses evil to work out blessing and turn all things to good is the illustration of God turning the the evil that happened in his son's life, in in Jesus Christ's life, and the sacrificial death of his own son, a horrible, wicked sin. In the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God took the, the most absolute evil that Satan could devise, and he turned that evil into the greatest blessing that he could offer to us which is eternal salvation from sin. So what should be our our attitude to trials? What does the Bible say should be our attitude to trials? Well, here you go. Look at these verses. James 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That is to be the response of a Christian. Consider it all joy. So who receives this wonderful promise of security? Who receives this promise? Now you might be surprised because, again, I've taken this verse out of context, and many people do. You might be surprised to find out that it doesn't apply to everyone. Verse 28 does not apply to everyone. Who does it apply to? It applies only to Christians. Only Christians or believers will receive eternal security. It doesn't apply to a non-Christian. In fact, look at verse 28. I'll show it to you here. Because it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Now, that's the first part. Those who love God is referring to Christians. Now, in God's sight, there's only two categories of people in this world. Only two. The categories of human beings are those who hate Him and those who love Him. That's it. Now, obviously, we do not love Christ as fully as we ought. I certainly don't, and neither do you. You don't, most of the time, you don't love God with all. So, because we're still imperfect, because we're still contaminated by sin, we still have the remnants of our old self until we're glorified, how can we know if we love God? Let me give you a couple things to think about, okay? How can you know if you love God? How do you know if you are in the category of verse 28, those who love God? Number one, genuine love longs for personal relationship and fellowship with the Lord. Do you? Do you? Uh, Next screen, please. (laughs) Actually, it's the next one. Um, Are you in this category of Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2? As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul, next screen please, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and and appear before God? Are you longing for the living water, who is Jesus Christ? If you really love him, you will long for this personal relationship and fellowship with God. Someone who loves him wants to be with him and talk with him and hear from him. They want to be in his presence. Number two, genuine love for God loves the people God loves. 
Look at on the screen, 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. I didn't say that. God did. <laughs> Those are the words of the living God. It goes on to say, For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now this is not talking about a blood brother here. The question is, do you love your Christian brother? Do you love your Christian brothers and sisters? Do you want to be with them? Do you want to fellowship with them? Do you love and long to come to to corporate gatherings of the church so that you can be with your brothers and sisters? If you don't long to come to corporate gatherings on Thursday nights and Sundays and any other times we get together, then you're not loving your brothers and sisters in Christ as you ought to. Number three, genuine love for God hates what God hates. Do you hate what God hates? Look at 1 John 2.15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. God does not love the philosophies and the sin and the evil deeds of this world. Of this world, there's cosmos. And if we love it, then we become a friend of the world, and God calls that spiritual adultery. God hates the world, and so should we. We ought to love the things that God loves and hates the thing that God hates. Number four, genuine love for God is obedience. Obedience. Jesus said in John 14, verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. We show our love for Jesus Christ and God when we see commands in Scripture and we want to obey them. And we do obey them. And we apply the Word of God to our lives. Number two, who receives eternal security? As if number one wasn't enough. Number one was those who love God, verse 28 says. But it's even more than that. Who receives eternal security? It's those who are called. Those who are called. Again, look at verse 28, the end of verse 28. To those who are called. To those who are called. So what is the basis of God's calling We have to ask that question because it's to those who are called, to those who love God, and to those who are called. So what is the basis of this calling? Well, I can tell you it's not our works. It is by God's grace and His grace alone. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not our doing. It's not our works. Now, don't get me wrong. Human faith is necessary for salvation. We saw that in Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5. Salvation or justification is by faith alone. Faith is necessary for salvation, but works aren't. Works has nothing to do with justification. So, Although human faith is necessary for salvation, God's gracious call is even more necessary. It's even more necessary. In fact, Jesus said in John 6, verse 65, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You cannot come to God the Father unless 
the Father grants it. In other words, unless the Father calls you and draws you to himself, you cannot come to him. It's like trying to get to the queen. <laughs> you, don't just, you don't just go and walk up to the queen. The queen has to give you the invitation, right? The queen gives you the invitation, and then that's how you get to her. And that's the only way you get to her. Well, God is even, even more so. Number four, this security is according to God's purpose. This security is according to God's purpose. Look at, at the end of verse 28. It's to those who are called, how? According to his purpose. It's according to his purpose. God causes all things to work together for the good of his children because that is according to his purpose. He's not some mean ogre sitting up in heaven who just, you know, you know like that, that, that evil witch doctor in, in Haiti, you know, he's sticking the pins in the voodoo doll. That's not God. God does everything for his glory and your good. So what is God's purpose? Verse 29 gives us the answer. Verse 29 is the answer. God's purpose is to save those whom he has called and predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That is the greatest good that God can do for us. That is according to his purpose. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10 says this. I've got it on the screen. Here's what God said. God said, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Do you believe that? Do you believe what God is saying here? That God makes promises and keeps promises? He's saying he's going to accomplish all his good pleasure. And that's what he's saying here in Romans 8 as well. So why will everything turn out good? Why will everything turn out good? Reason number one. Believers have a new confidence. Believers have a new confidence. Here's reason number two. The believer has a new purpose. A believer, the believer has a new purpose. What is the purpose of salvation? What is the purpose of salvation? Now you might be surprised to find out that salvation is not all about you. It's not all about us. The first purpose of salvation is found here in verse 29. And it is to make believers into the likeness of Christ. Look at verse 29. Part C. <laughs> Part C says, he, uh, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Why? To be conformed to the image of his Son. That is the first purpose of salvation. In other words, I'll put it in my own language. To make believers into the likeness of Christ. One commentator put it this way. Quote, There is no failure or... There we go. There is no failure or partial fulfillment in the sovereign operation of God's salvation plan. Every believer who is saved will one day be glorified. There is absolutely no allowance for the possibility of a believer sinning himself out of God's grace. He can no more work himself out of salvation than he could have worked himself into it. There is therefore, uh, nor is there any allowance for an 
intermediate state of limbo or purgatory in which some Christians fall short of being fully conformed to the image of God's Son and must, after death, somehow complete their salvation by their own works or have it completed by others on their behalf. Why does a certain particular religious group in our city go and have, go and bapt, and have themselves baptized for their dead relatives? Why does another religious group in our city and in our country and the world, or at least they used to, maybe they, I don't know if they still do or not, you know, used to give indulgences, pay money for indulgences so you can get your dead relative out of purgatory. By the way, purgatory is not in the Bible. There is no state of limbo. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord if you're a Christian. There is no purgatory. Purgatory is in the Apocrypha. So if you're wondering where that heretical uh, belief comes from, it comes from the Apocrypha, which is not Scripture. So how will we be like Christ? Because the purpose of salvation, the first purpose of salvation is that we are to be made in the likeness of Christ. How, will we be, how are we going to be made like Christ? Because we're not going to be God. We're not going to become gods and inhabit our own planet with, with all of these virgins. <laughs> what a ludicrous idea. So how are we going to be like Christ? Number one, we will be like Christ bodily. Bodily. Philippians 3, verse 21 says that Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the way, that's his glorious body after his resurrection. So the way Christ's body was after his resurrection is the way all Christians' bodies will be one day. Number two, how is, how is your body, or how are you going to be like Christ? We will be like Christ spiritually. Now, this doesn't mean that we're all going to become gods. That's not what this is saying. You are not going to become deity one day, no. But it does mean that our imperishable bodies are going to be made holy. We are going to be, holy. holiness has the idea of being made distinct and separate and unique. That's the way God is. And we're going to be this both outwardly and inwardly. We're going to be made perfect, outwardly and inwardly. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, it's on the screen, Beloved, now we are children of God and has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. So the first purpose of salvation is you're to be made like Christ. Number two, it's to glorify Jesus Christ. The purpose of your salvation is to glorify Jesus Christ. Again, look at verse 29. Look at verse 29. It's the first part there was, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. How are we to glorify Jesus Christ in salvation? The answer is found in that word firstborn. Firstborn gives us the answer. The word firstborn has the idea of, of, of Jesus Christ having first place. He has first place, and so by giving him first place, we are glorifying Jesus Christ. And 
this really comes from the idea of the first, uh, the firstborn male child in Jewish families. The firstborn male child had the privileged status. And the term was often used figuratively to represent the highest rank. And that's what it's referring to as Jesus Christ. Therefore, what what it's saying is that God's purpose is to make us like Christ in order to create this, this new, redeemed, glorified humanity over which Jesus Christ is going to reign and over which Jesus Christ has first place. Boy, that gives a whole new perspective on what salvation is all about. That doesn't sound like the health and wealth gospel to me. (laughs) Not even close. In fact, here's what Philippians 2 verses 9 and 10 say. God highly exalted him, that's Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and on earth and even those under the earth which could be alluding to those who are in hell. Even those in hell will bow the the knee to King Jesus. May I suggest to you that you bow the knee to King Jesus now before you're forced to do it? We sang Revelation 4, verse 11, which shows why we ought to bow the knee to King Jesus. Revelation 4.11 says this, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. All things were created by him and for him. So why will everything turn out good? What was number one? First reason? Why will everything turn out good? Because believers have a new confidence. Number two, believers have a new purpose. And number three, the believer has a new destiny. The believer has a new destiny. What is the progress of salvation? Now, this is very interesting. Please stay with me here. There is a progress of salvation that we find in these verses. There are five elements in the progression of salvation here. And uh, you need to take note of these, the order that they come in. And, and, and think of them as a chain. You guys know how to chain, what a chain is? Think of them as a chain linked together. And it's essential to realize that these five links in the chain of God's saving work are unbreakable. And that's why I'm calling this the greatest security system you will ever find. It is unbreakable. Number one, the first chain in the link, if you will, or the first element in the progress of salvation is that God foreknew us. God foreknew us. Again, look at verse 29. For whom he foreknew. For whom he foreknew. Now this is a controversial topic. But when something's in the Bible and God says it, we must believe it, even if we don't understand it. God's foreknowledge, by the way, is not a reference to his all-knowing foresight. Does God know all things even before they happen? Absolutely, but that's not what this is talking about. When it says that he foreknew us, it's not talking about his all-knowing foresight into the future. In Scripture, the idea of to know, you see the word knew or know there in that word, often carries the idea of special intimacy. 
and is frequently used of a love relationship. You say, where did you come up with that? I've never heard that. For example, Genesis 4, verse 1. It says, now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. It doesn't mean that Adam somehow saw something that was going to happen to Eve in the future. That's not what it means that Adam knew his wife. It means that Adam, he knew his wife in an intimate, personal relationship. He knew her intimately. And the end result is shown there in Genesis 4.1. She conceived and gave birth to Cain. Okay, that's a biblical example. So what, what am I saying? That foreknowledge is referring to God's choice on his part to have this intimate love relationship with his people. He is willfully choosing to love his people, to have this relationship and fellowship with believers and Christians. That's what it means when God says he foreknew us. One commentator put it this way, quote, It is both unbiblical and illogical to argue from that truth that the Lord simply looked ahead to see who would believe and then choose those particular individuals for salvation. If that were true, salvation not only would begin with man's faith, but would make God obligated to grant it. End quote. God is not granted or, or obligated in any way. He is free, totally free, to do as he chooses. So number one, the first link in the chain or the first element in this progress of salvation is what? God foreknew us. Number two, God predestined us for salvation. Again, look at verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Notice the word, by the way. You're going to see those words throughout verses 29 and 30. He also. He also. He also. He also. He also. Do you get the point? He also is the glue, if you will, that, that binds all of the chain together. All of the progression of salvation. Every link of salvation is stuck together by those two words. He also. Predestined, what does that mean? Because it says that he predestined us to salvation. Here's what it literally means. To mark out a point or determine beforehand. Here's the point. God has predestined or predetermined ahead of time the destiny of every person who will believe in him. I know that's an unpopular topic today. And Christians are divided over this. But do you believe what Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5 says? Do you believe it? It's on the screen here. It says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And Ephesians 1 makes it clear it is that that was not based upon our works or our faith, but it's according to the kind intention of his will, and he did it before he created the earth. But you say, well, I I thought I chose Christ when I got saved. I thought I chose him. You did. (laughs) Wait a minute. You're telling me that God chose me. I am. 
So are they both true? Yes. You chose him and he chose you. But the reason you chose him is because, what? The Bible says, why do we love him? Because he first loved us. That's why you love him. So we are not Christians, first of all, because we decided you know, to choose Christ, but because of what God decided about us before he even created the world. And so the only reason that we're able to choose God is because he first chose us. Number three, the, first, the third link or element in the progress of salvation is that God called us. God called us. That's found at the beginning of verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. So in God's plan of redemption, and by redemption I just mean that he bought us back from the slave market of sin, predestination leads to the next point, which is what? Calling. The next point is calling. Who are the called ones? The called ones are those in whose hearts the Holy Spirit is is working in such a way that he leads them to the saving faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the called ones are those who believe. That's who the called ones are. By the way, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. The church is only made of believers. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 says this on the screen, God called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is granted us in Christ Jesus. Notice the time period here. From all eternity. Folks, you cannot avoid this truth. It is throughout Scripture. It's not only in Ephesians 1 and Romans. You have been called before you were even born. God called you to be a Christian. He called out one. Now some who believe in God's calling have, have taken this truth to the extreme. They've taken it too far, if you will. They're called hyper-Calvinists. Okay, uh, <clears throat> Scripture nowhere says that God chooses unbelievers for eternal damnation. You will not find that in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that God chooses a certain group of people who are elected to burn in the lake of fire forever. It doesn't say that. And so it should, should be strongly emphasized that my, my point is this, that Scripture doesn't teach that truth. And if it doesn't teach that, then let's not go there. If a person goes to hell, why do they go to hell? A person goes to hell because they want to go to hell. It's because they rejected God and His way of salvation. That's what John 3.18 says. They are condemned already because they have not believed in the, in the name of Jesus Christ. Number four, the fourth link and element in the progress of salvation is God justified us. God justified us. Look at, again, look at verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. These he also justified. Justified here refers to a believer being made right with God. And who does it? God does. God is the one who declares a sinner righteous. God is the one who imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us and gives us the, those white robes of righteousness. How does he do that? Because doesn't Romans 3.23 say that all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God? Yes, Romans 3.23 says that. But do you know what the next verse says? We often know Romans 3.23. But Romans 3.24 says this, that we are justified by a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. (laughs) It's a gift. You don't deserve it. It's unmerited. You can't earn it. You don't have enough money nor a good, enough good works to get it. The fifth link or element, sorry, fifth link or element in the progression of salvation is that God promised to glorify us. God promised to glorify us. Look at verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Oh, that's awesome, isn't it? Glorification is inseparable from the other elements. That's why I say this chain is unbreakable because God is the glue. He glues it together. He is the ultimate security system. (laughs) And this is exclusively a work of God here. What a wonderful promise we have here. This is eternal security. It is safer and greater than even the security of Fort Knox. Every Christian is eternally secure. And this is one of these passages that we can go to that show us this. And and I say that, one reason I say that is because, did you notice the tense in in the words used in verse 30? The tense of the words, is it present, future, or past tense? It is past. Every one of them are past tense. God has glorified you. He also glorified, it says. It's accomplished. If you're a believer, this was already accomplished before you were ever born. It is that certain. When God makes promises, he keeps those promises. So no one whom God foreknows is, will fail to be predestined, called, justified, and ultimately glorified. So the, so the beginning of verse 29 says, For whom he foreknew... Those whom God chooses to set his love upon, the ultimate end of God's love is the end of verse 30. You don't get the beginning of verse 29 and somehow miss out the end of verse 30. When God sets his love on you, you are glorified. You say, well, I don't feel glorified yet. You're not glorified yet, okay? (laughs) You're not glorified yet. Your body is going to be glorified one day. But it is so certain that God puts it in the past tense. That is how certain it is. So my friend, if you are a believer today, you can be assured that everything in your life will turn out good. Why? Because you have the best security. The best security is God himself and his promises. Well, as for you, my non-Christian friend, who has heard this message today, Today you, you can be, today can be, let me put it this way, today can be the day that you find rest for your weary soul. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to him. 
Jesus is the living water. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the bread. And if you come to Him, you will find the satisfaction that your weary soul needs. Stop fretting. Stop worrying. Stop fearing. But instead, come to the one who can satisfy. The only one who can satisfy. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Are you fretting? Are you worrying? Are you fearing? Is there anything you're concerned about? You're wondering, well, what's going to happen to me when I die? There's no reason to fear death. Death is just an initiation into something that is greater yet to come. Why? Because all things are going to turn out good for the believer. This is not your best life now, if you're a Christian. But if you're an unbeliever, this is your best life now. Because when you die, you're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. You will spend eternity in a place where you will never die. You wish you will die, but you cannot die. And you will suffer horrible, eternal suffering. But the good news is, those who believe in Jesus Christ will be saved, and you get eternal security, the greatest, the best, the safest place to be is in God's hand. Are you in God's hand? Let's pray. Let's pray.